The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. And Barry Kenny from Irish Rail is with us. Thank you very much for taking time out of your Saturday morning. Front page of the Irish Daily Mail, 140 million euro plan to get trains running on time, delayed by two years. Government warned project is highly unlikely to be delivered within budget. Is this Irish Rail's fault? Well, what we have is, this is the National Train Control Centre, which is a major project to bring all of our train network under a single control, improve performance, train performance and communications across the network. And people who travel in and out of Houston will see the building as complete uh, uh, as you uh, come in and out uh, of the station as it stands. We would have intended to have it originally fully commissioned by the end of 2024. Construction of this started at the outset of COVID. So obviously that has had an impact uh, to the project. But we would anticipate now that the operation control of our trains, which is the, the critical aspect of it, as I say, the building is complete, would be complete and migrated in phases through mid-2025. So this is a case of a project that started the outset of COVID, was obviously impacted by that, and we would expect by mid-2025, rather than late 2024, to have that traffic and that train management system uh, commissioned in phases. Now, surely people would think, for Irish Rail, COVID would have been a time that afforded you more scope to get things done because it can't have been the busiest of periods for you. Well, you'll remember, was hugely impacted at the outset of COVID and uh, that was certainly a factor. But we would have worked with our our contractors in terms of the train management and the traffic management system uh, through that uh, at all times. But uh, I think it was inevitable that it is a complex system uh, that there would be some impact from COVID from a construction point of view. And as I say, we're working through the actual systems uh, at, at this point in time. But the idea that it's two years is, is, is simply not the case. Uh, we would expect the full commissioning, the full uh, centre to be completed by the uh, end of 2025. Uh, and as I say, the actual train management system, the traffic management system, uh, migrated in phases through the middle of that year. And what difference will it make when it's up and running? What difference will make is that right now we have, as well, most of our network controlled by central traffic control, but there are some local control areas. And it is quite a manual system. This has a lot more automation involved. So let's say, for example, a truck hits a bridge somewhere that affects the, a Drogheda train. This system will automatically calculate the impact of that and minimize delays around the network and, uh, and, and reschedule to ensure uh, the, the best performance. It will also mean that our information uh, and communications internally are significantly improved so we can assist customers uh, in that situation. It also means that as we expand our network, the system will be able for that, that this is a train control centre, not just for our current network, but as we expand, it is equipped to, to deliver uh, and support those systems, uh, whereas our, our current one really is at capacity and we're, of course, heading into a period of significant expansion in our services and indeed in our network. And when you talk about network expansion, Barry, obviously the, the scale of the network is one thing, but the capacity in terms of, of speed is the other. Are you getting, because you, you upgraded switching and, and um, some of the track network on some of the major routes over the past couple of years, are you getting to the point where the journey time between major cities is as quick as it can be without going back to the drawing board and actually starting afresh? Uh, you still have uh, quite a bit of scope there in terms of we've, we've had some work on the Cork line, for example, and, and we do have our fastest ever journey time uh, delivered now on our Express uh, 2014 service. Uh, 
between uh, Cork and Dublin. Uh, there are further works in terms of you know the, the, the track renewal and the track bed. There's things like the, the, the curvature of the track in certain areas that you can work on also. We would see that within the current infrastructure, you know, we, uh, with investment, could get to two hours uh, on the Dublin Cork, a, a little less. And that would be our goal, really, is to get that two hours or less between Dublin and the major cities uh, to be you know, very, very competitive. And that's something that's the business under the All Island Strategic Rail Review uh, to continue to work that. As is always the case when you're on, Barry, questions start to come in. Uh, just to give you a couple of the ones, you can guess the ones that are most common. It is represented by this. Can you ask Barry when the catering will be back? In this instance, on the Sligo train, please. It's back on the Cork train, which obviously also benefits Kerry and Limerick. It's on Belfast also. We are at the tender at the moment. Uh, we would hope in the early months of this year to conclude that tender process uh, and, uh, and get that catering back as quickly as possible. And then the other hardy perennial, uh, will you please ask Barry, when will it be possible to get an e-ticket hyphen Dark Ages? Oh, well, I'm breaking news for you there. So on that one, answer, it is available on, on many ticket types. There are low flex and, uh, and semi-flex uh, fares, but it will be available on all intercity online book tickets from this Tuesday. From this Tuesday, you will be able to get an e-ticket on Irish Rail? Yes, for, uh, it is on quite a number of ticket types at the moment, but for all of our city ticket types, uh, it will be commissioned from that day. Well, stop the lights. Barry, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, that is Barry Kenny, of course, from Irish Rail. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. If you want to get in touch, you can get us 087-1400-106 on WhatsApp. I am joined by Fiona Sheehan, editor, or rather I should say Ireland editor with the Irish Independent and Barbara Scully, broadcaster and writer. Will you both be rushing out to buy a train ticket on Tuesday for the crack of doing it as an e-ticket? Isn't that exclusive? Yeah, may, I know. Brilliant ah, you see, you're here in here on the ground floor. And the thing I was trying not to be cynical about was the catering. Like, that's just a trolley, right? It is it's just a trolley, like a but it makes a bit... Car. You're stuck on for two hours, like we said, for a bag of popcorn and a free coffee. Now, right. the, there's a lot in the papers, and uh, one of the things is the supplement that I mentioned earlier, Fionn, which is inside your paper, The Irish Independent, that being, how much is your house worth 2024? There's a there's a bit of a whiff of 2006 off this, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's but a lot of trends being identified uh, as as well. You know, some 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 good, some bad. Some which are a cause of the shortage of supply, sh- such as that couples are now looking at old shops and pubs because they can't get a house in the town that they, they want to live in. So they're looking at the old urban streets and going, right, there's properties here. Could you could you do them up? Can you? There's, there are fine examples of old shops being converted into to lovely houses and still retaining some of the, of the old features and, and so on. So that's the prospect there of kind of breathing life back into to town centres. On, on the flip side, I mean, that is basically a reflection of there isn't anywhere else for them, for them to go. And a number of factors have been kicking in over the last year that should have uh, cooled prices and and calmed things down quite a bit, such as the, the 10 hikes in, in interest rates. That that very much had a, an impact on uh, the, the buying power and, and the sustainability of, of for, for payment of mortgages. Uh, you also have the, the efficiency of homes kicking in with, with rising fuel prices. People are, are looking at houses going, I don't, I don't want to go into a cold house. That's going to cost me a, a fortune. Are they? Are people not under just so much pressure to find somewhere to live they'll take anything? But they're, they're factoring that into their thinking as well in that in that they're thinking, right, okay, I'll, I'll pay this much for it, that this will be the mortgage, but then I'm going to have high energy bills as, as, as well. So while you have uh, a, a highly efficient A-rated house, brand new, will 
cost such an amount, there, there should be a, a push factor then bring the price uh, down uh, of other ones because it's in it's in the, the mines. And also landlords selling up, though we keep getting told by the government, this isn't the phenomenon that we're all being told it is. Well, the local auctioneers on the ground who are talking in this uh, survey on how much is your house worth 2024 are basically saying, yeah, it, it is actually. that There are particular uh, landlords, small landlords, who are now finding themselves coming out of negative equity, who are looking at the property market saying now is the chance to, to sell up uh, and who are are basically looking at what they thought was an investment now turning into a, a millstone uh, and selling up. So those three factors should have be having an impact in terms of pushing down prices. But on the flip side, there's still the scarcity, the, the supply and the shortage of housing. And that's why you're still seeing prices go up. And some of those prices, I mean, Barbara, when you look around the, the Dublin prices, if you were trying to buy, and obviously with the, with the way that the population um, proportions work in, in Ireland, a lot of people need to, for work reasons, live around the capital city. The prices are extraordinary. Dublin 15, 500, average, 535,000 euro in Dublin 15. Um, Dublin 3, they've broken Dublin 3 into Dublin 3, excluding Clontarf and then Dublin 3, Clontarf. Clontarf only, 860,000 euro for an average house. Yeah. I can't engage with this kind of information whatsoever because when you've two adult kids still living at home and you look at those and you live... And I'd like to, I'd like to say I'm second generation in Dunleary, so you know I am rooted in Dunleary. I'm not just there for the crack. Nine hundred and twenty-five grand average houses around you. you She's not this trashy new money at all. (laughs) She's old money. I'm old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But like you know, it is it is the most profoundly depressing thing for uh, somebody of my age who's got adult kids to read about the fact that how the hell. Are they ever going to rent, let alone are they ever going to buy? So, you know. Well, this is like joking aside, if that's the average house prices where they grew up, if they're looking to buy a house. But you know the other thing? I mean, the whole housing system is so kaput in this country. But one of the things that we were looking at, and Fiona and I were just about to talk about it outside, is the fact that at my stage in life now, myself and my husband would be considering, you know, in the next 10 years, we could downsize. We, you know, if the kids ever finally launch, we could downsize, but we don't want to necessarily have to move down to Exford, you know, because our lives are all in 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 around. There's nowhere that we could downsize to that would allow us to put some money in the bank and live in a smaller house and put our house, which is a family house, back on the market. Leitrim. Leitrim, yeah. And According Leitrim's to this, I mean, and, and, I mean, no, I'm not disparaging Leitrim in any way. That, but if you're looking for, oh, I tell a lie, Cavan, €195,000 is the average house price in Cavan. Which and there's looking lovely at this lakes survey, up there. Cheap. You're only around the corner from Nevin Maguire. Uh, true, true. He does a lovely vegetarian. It, now, <laughs> then, yeah. And that, that's a trend. Great. I mean, that this study is basically finding older couples in bigger houses yeah. are now won't trade down for fear of not getting a smaller property. That's exactly so it. So they're literally going, our house is too big. I'd like to trade down, yeah. but I'm not going to bother putting a house in the market because I won't be able to find out. No, it's exactly. the same post. This then goes to the issue of, uh, we've. it's not like this is new news. We know we've had a housing crisis for some time and there have been a whole series of schemes that have been put in place to uh, alleviate that pressure. Very few of them seem to be having much in the way of a silver bullet solution. One of them, Finan, you're <laughs> writing about today, uh, page two of the Irish Independent, in a piece that begins, despite floor-to-ceiling windows being a Dermot Bannon staple, transparency is not a trademark of room to improve. It's a very well-written piece. It's, <laughs> it's highly entertaining. This is a piece about one of the grand schemes. This is to, to uh, repair derelict houses 
and how difficult it actually is to get that grand scheme if you're not Dermot Bannon. Yeah, if <laughs> if if you appear as a as a contestant uh, on Room to Improve, uh, Dermot just pencils it in. Oh, look, you're going to get the grants, no problem. And off we go now, and we're going to put in uh, the, the large open spaces and go open plan and rip off the roof and so on and so forth. <laughs> and, that, and that's great. The reality of for lots of other people is that in the course of 18 months, only uh, one in every 220 people who have applied for this grant have actually got any cash in hand uh, at, at this point. Only half of them have actually had their applications processed. The other half are just left uh, kind of uh, in limbo. And then, you look, you have very straight, you, you, you have straightforward acceptance and approvals and you have, have rejections and, and denials of a grant. And that's as, as things uh, should, should be. What homeowners are, are basically saying is that they are buying these houses thinking that, oh, there's a grant available, I'll, I'll get that. And then finding themselves mired in, in red tape uh, and delays such that they, they shouldn't really have factored in. If, if they could get it at the end, an added bonus, that, that's great. But they're, they're basically, caveat emptor here, beware of going near these grants because it can take quite a considerable period of time to get, to get approval. It, it's not a, a cash up front uh, situation. There doesn't even seem to be a, a, a new product on the market that basically says a bank saying, we'll give you the, we'll give you the, the 30 grand up front. And then you can you can pay us back when when the government pay you. That doesn't doesn't seem to be there. So there seems to be a lot of issues with what, in principle, is a very good idea. That if you're buying a rundown house, that if you need to do it up either for energy efficiency or or to renovate it, the government will will help you out. The government are getting money back anyway in terms of the the VAT and the building and so on and so forth. But in practice, this is not working well uh, on the ground, and that seems to be the primary problem with it. This may be, Barbara, a naive question, but why is this this entire issue proving so completely intractable? If, if you cast your mind back to 2011, we were able to create an agency to shift 30 billion worth of bad debt out of the banks effectively overnight. This, I would have thought, is maybe not a commensurate problem, but it is the single largest problem facing the state at the moment. And we seem to be getting nowhere. And it affects everything. I mean, it affects our ability to take in, you know, people, whether they're coming here to work or whether they're coming here seeking uh, refuge. It affects everything. And it affects, as I said, people like me whose children can't move on. Um, but it's worth I, actually just, just exploring that even further. It's one of those ones where across the entire economic spectrum, whether you started yeah. immigrants and, and um, uh, refugees, whether you started people who are trying to rent their first house, all of the way up to the big FDI where you're trying to attract yeah. big American companies, it's impacting everything and we're getting nowhere. We're getting nowhere. I mean, I obviously, if I had the answer, that'd be deadly and I'd be really, really <laughs> much cleverer than I am and I probably wouldn't be in here at the crack of dawn doing the news panel. I'd be doing something else that would be very lucrative. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's got to be the fact that somewhere along the line, we have changed as a society from looking at homes and places to live that are comfortable and safe and, you know, in communities to looking at our houses as investments as of ways to make money, as of, you know, and there's too many vested interests. You know, I mean, I'm where I live, <laughs> out on the south side. There's huge developments of brand new apartment complexes, huge apartment complexes, all of which have been bought up by funds, which are renting them out at huge rents, which are probably rents that are probably higher 
than you would pay in a mortgage repayment if you had been able to get the mortgage to buy the property in the first place. So I think that's that's also skewing everything up. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, if I had an answer, I'd be much cleverer. Last than week, the government indicating that they were going to increase the level of targets for the, the housing and still falling short by, I think, in the region of about twenty five to 30,000 houses a year from what is needed and from what the Construction Industry Federation says is possible. Yeah, and look, you become a victim of your own success uh, as well as your economy drives, your your population rises, then for, therefore you have greater numbers of people looking uh, for housing. But ironically, then that, that means that there can be a shortage of workers. A key, construction is, is a, a, a key uh, area in this regard. So, the, you know, the, the cycle continues that your population keeps keeps going up, but you're, you're, you can't uh, match what's there. Ironically, as, as we found out, in a downturn, you don't have the money to invest in that capital. Your your property market uh, collapses. You end up with people in, in negative equity uh, and and ghost estates, uh, and you don't have the ability to actually invest for the future and think, aha. In 15 years' time, we'll need a load of these houses. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you were talking about the grant and how difficult it is. What did you say, one in 200 and something? Yeah, if you, if you knock out the figure, there's only 21 people have got this grant, have actually got cash in hand. In total, 21. So far. What? So it's been, there's been nearly 5,000 applications because it, it basically takes a, a period of time. You have to apply for it, then you have to do, do the work, then it has to be come out. And, that juxtaposition and is currently 5,000 applications, 21 have got cash. Yeah, I mean, this, this was debated in the doll before Christmas. The government says it's it's a great success. I don't think anybody is denying that, that the scheme is a good idea. The, the point is just being made. It, it needs to be made more uh, efficient. And there seems to be loopholes in, in terms of how it is applied by local authorities across the country and as is, well. And is it not pushing up the the prices of these derelict houses uh-huh. then as well? well yes, yeah, so this is the other thing that people are saying anecdotally now that estate agents are are pointing out this house has been vacant for two years therefore it is now uh, possible uh, to to get a grant uh, of up to 70 grand uh, for this house therefore you know the price is 50 grand more than it was yeah. Yeah. so, so this, the grants are just getting priced in yeah this yeah. is what, what people are, are, are saying now is happening as well and look that, that happens with your, your first time it happened years ago the first time fine uh, buyers yeah. grave happened years ago with mortgage interest relief now with with the the first home home scheme, uh, rent to buy and and so on. That the, the schemes for new of new homes for first time buyers, they're also kind of fueling the the, the price uh, inflation anyway. So you know whatever comes into the market. Those who are selling within the market will soon cotton onto it and say this is a sales yeah. pitch and that's rise up the price. Interesting. In relation to the grants, uh, a lot of people commenting about other grants and how difficult and bureaucratic they may be to get or how impractical. Well, one saying, I'm a senior citizen. I own my own little bungalow. The walls are pumped and roof insulated and the house is still cold. It would cost €60,000 to retrofit and I would pay €30,000. I don't have that kind of money, which means that the grant for 60000 is unusable yeah. because you can't pay your half. What about giving a grant to help people divide their bigger houses into two, like soundproofing, etc.? I don't need my big house to uh, rattle around in. Another more than 300 apartments built beside me in uh, Airfield. None are uh, for sale. And to rent a one-bedroom apartment is €2,300. €2,300 for a one-bedroom apartment. Who can afford that monthly? And then the very next text saying, not defending developers, 
but banks struggle to lend to them. So their only option when it comes to large apartment developments is selling to investment funds, who I assume therefore provide some of the capital. 53106, if you want to get in touch, you can get us 87 106 on WhatsApp. In relation to political stories, obviously US politics uh, significant at the moment because we are coming through the primaries. One uh, small local uh, piece of politics before we get to that. Barbara, the uh, Independent, um, or rather the Times, mm. um, the front page of the Times is revealing that Northern Unionists mightn't like the idea of a tricolour being the flag of a united Ireland. I think the phrase I'm looking for is, you don't say. (laughs) (laughs) There's a surprise now. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is uh, on the back of research that the Irish Times did into uh, attitudes, both north and south. And basically it's looking, I suppose, at the big question of what do we need to do here in the Republic in order to make uh, it a, a little bit more palatable for Northern Unionists to perhaps consider the whole concept of uh, a new Ireland and a united Ireland. Um, and obviously Give up the, our flag? The That's three things are much. the flag, um, the anthem, I suppose. And also there's been the question has been uh, out there this week of us possibly rejoining, would, would us rejoining the Commonwealth uh, help to uh, swallow this medicine a little better? And the survey has shown that all of those things are a complete like anthem to people in the, in, in the Republic and not having any of it. But we were talking outside and I was just saying um, that it was only recently I sat down and I, I worked out, obviously I'm very old, but I worked out the fact that I was born just 40 years after independence. I think sometimes we forget how recent our independence is. So I think we have this kind of visceral connection to things like that were very much part of us getting independence from Britain. The flag, the anthem, leaving the Commonwealth. Although apparently we never really actually left the Commonwealth. But anyway, um, officially... like membership there was, fees just drifted. Yes, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is it like a I gym? Will they keep annoying us with junk mail? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a bit like leaving the Catholic Church you know there isn't a certificate you just don't go anymore um, but so it's not really surprising that Irish people do hold on to these things in a kind of a an instinctual kind of uh, um, way there, There's one interesting bit though about the, the um, survey that they did which is that normally you can effectively pump prime a response so if you do a lead-in question yes. you can lean somebody in a direction so they asked two lead-in questions one was um, you realise the symbolic nature that it is about the orange tradition the and the Fenian tradition living together in peace. And the other one was, they said, well, you know, it's roll in 1916 and flying over the GPO. Didn't matter a damn which way you went. The attitude from the loyalist community was, good luck, we don't want that. It's a kind of visceral thing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an unconscious almost thing. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that's not really surprising. But I think the bottom line is that I, it's it's probably a little premature yet to be kind of engaging in, in too much of this. Uh, I think time saying. will... will soften some of those attitudes. A successful United Ireland is one that the tricolour waving Republicans can barely stomach and unionists can just barely accept. The Commonwealth and loss of tricolour might be those bitter pills. 53106 if you want to get in We touch. don't seem to want to give up any. No. Flags and symbols are massively important in, in Northern Ireland. They, 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 you end up with very many of the agreements that have come about since the Good Friday Agreement, every time things have to be put back together, flags and symbols are this really awkward part uh, toward, towards the end that really nobody on the British uh, or in London and Dublin understands how in, intrinsic uh, it, it is. And we're, we're now at a position where basically we're not going to give up the tricolour. We're not going to give up our anthem. We're not joining the Commonwealth. I mean, 
are we going to still allow them to support Rangers? I mean, what, <laughs> what exactly are we are we conceding to a million people who were bringing in to this uh, our nation and basically saying to them, right, we we you identify as something different, uh, but tough luck, uh, you're joining us now, and and that's it. And you're, there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement from any of these services. There's going to be any concession here. It's just going to be, well, we're going to become a, a country of 7 million and those million people are going to have to lump like a lump. It uh, is interesting we were talking about outside when you consider that we now consider ourselves very modern, very multicultural, very diverse, except when it comes to unionists. You know, everybody else can bring in your culture and we're delighted to have you on board. It has to be said as well, there's also a lot of just boring bureaucratic legwork that we're taking for granted. I was yeah. talking to Bertie Hearn about this a number of months ago and he was pointing out that the, the simple things of how's the judicial system going to work how's the civil service going to work how's the public service going to work what are you going to do with all the state supports that come in from the UK that now won't be there if people don't have answers to all of those questions the answer will be no to any referendum because we don't quite know what this holds Yeah and how will your social welfare system align I mean ironically bad and all as we may think that the HSE yeah. is actually uh, the NHS has come down in, in standards so much over the course of the last uh, 10 to 15 of, of, of Tory leadership that, you know, the, the health argument is no longer the big uh, talking point that it was previously. So you, you are going to, to come up with very basic things about people's day-to-day lives that people will be obviously asking, well, how exactly is this going to work? I should say there is a lot of stories in the papers this weekend in relation to road safety. Some very interesting surveys in respect of attitudes to drink driving with apparently a softening. I mean, that was one that we thought, that was a battle that everybody thought was won. But it looks like there is a softening in attitudes towards drink driving with more than 20% of people saying that they would drive having had a drink if it was only in the local area, which I would have thought is a significant shift from uh, the way attitudes had been. We're going to have Liz O'Donnell, the chair of the Road Safety Authority, on after 11 o'clock because, of course, last year was the worst year in recent history uh, for road deaths. Before, guys, I let you go, the other significant, massive news of the weekend is that Mickey Mouse is now free. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a great story. It's it's kind of... uh, (laughs) Elements of the original Mickey Mouse, if you want to reenact it, you can, but you can't sell any merchandise off the back of... That. Now this but, is because he's come out of copyright. Seventy years, and he's seventy years old. So therefore, I thought, does that not make him fair game? Can Steamboat, I not? Know? Yeah, Steamboat Willie is now available to be to be recreated uh, by other people outside of the Disney universe. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can sell merchandise off the back of that or, or recreate it in sort of in some sort of commercial manner because it's all still tied in. And Disney have got a long track record of protecting their trademarks and their copyrights so tread very carefully there. Do you think there'd be any desire to remake Steamboat Willie? Barbara? <laughs> In other words, you can only have a black and white, Mickey. <laughs> you can't have a colourful one. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you very much. That is Barbara Scully, uh, broadcaster and writer and Phil and Ireland editor with the Irish Independent. The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.